Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Good morning, beautiful people. 
I want to appreciate you for joining me here this morning on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. You are listening to Prison Focus Radio, and I'm your host, Nube Brown. Uh, Before we get started, I want to remind you that we are in a fun drive to keep this beautiful radio station alive so you can hear music, commentary, um, and just thoughts and perspectives that you will hear nowhere else. So be generous, um, be involved, and make your donation today. Be as generous as you can. Like I said, um, you can uh, donate easily online by going to kpoo.com and you can mail in your check or money order by making your check or money order to kpoo and sending it to kpoo p.o box 156650 san francisco california 94115 let's keep this beautiful station going um and i want to thank all of the beautiful programmers and um those uh, holding it down over there um, or here uh, in in the station. Uh, so much love to all of you, and thank you so much. Always in gratitude for being able to uh, host what I consider to be one of the most precious hours that we have on uh, the radio, um, uh, being able to shine light on what is taking place um, in the prison industrial slave complex, modern-day slavery inside of our prisons. Okay, um, with all of that said, um, it's November, it's voting season. Uh, We just have one week before, or less than a week, before uh, people in five states, citizens in five states have the opportunity to remove the slave language from their state constitutions. We have Louisiana, Tennessee, Alabama, Vermont, and Oregon. Um, and in Alabama, they are, uh, have the, the prisoners there have uh, finished up, had finished up a three-week uh, prison strike uh, there in all 13 of their, uh, the prisons there in Alabama. And um, as of this uh, pre-recording, they have uh, started back again on their prison strike to uh, expose to the world the uh, the atrocities, the genocide, the slavery that's taking place in Alabama's prisons, uh, reflective of what's taking place throughout the prisons, our prisons here, uh, which is modern day slavery uh, throughout this whole country. And they started this back up, I believe, October 31st. Um, as of this, again, this pre-recording, which is just the next day, I have not heard yet, but please stay tuned and please show your support for those five states, including Alabama, that are going to the, where their people have the opportunity to remove the slave language from their state constitutions um, and start this process of ending slavery once and for all. California had the opportunity to do that, but our Governor Newsom did not made sure that we as voters did not even get a chance to decide whether we wanted slave language taken out of our state constitution, claiming that it's too expensive to end slavery in California. Let that sink in. All right. 
Uh, we are going to get started uh, with, uh, we are going to be hearing from uh, Hashima because we are still talking about the indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex. It is in a book of the same name, but this is really a concept. This is an action that it needs to be taken. This is um, information that we need to be taking in around, again, what it, again what is taking place in this country and in the state of California and its prison system um, and indicting the state and the reasons why. Uh, we are going to be hearing more uh, from Kinetic Justice, who is a prisoner, an activist, organizing abolitionist prisoner in Alabama. You heard from him last week. If you have been listening to the show regularly, we are going to hear from more from him. And uh, we are also going to be hearing from uh, a Balagoon, uh, Muhammad Kambon Balagoon, uh, who um, uh, is going to be talking to us about uh, the definition of revolutionary humanism, because we ran a story in the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper, or the SF Bayview, um, uh, about revolutionary humanism, and people have been asking him, and so he wanted to offer his explanation for that. So you will be hearing from him as well. So we've got quite a few voices to be hearing from. I hope you enjoy this show and that you will stay with us and let other people know, uh, please, we really can no longer, um, if we care about humanity, to be living with slavery, on legal slavery, on our watch. All right, here we go. All right, for those of you that are just joining us, we have been reading over these past few weeks, Indictment of the State and its Prison Industrial Slave Complex by Joka Hashima Jensai and Concept by Abdul Olubala Shakur. Right now, you can only get it on Amazon. We are on page 27, Indictment Count number 5. This is heavy stuff, but I think it's important to, to be realistic about what's taking place within our prisons instead of just dismissing it and dismissing the voices of the people inside that are crying out, uh, not only with their, with their complaints about the fact that they are being subjected to torture and murder and abuse and neglect and, um, and silencing, but also the wisdom of the people that are inside who are um, uh, being modern-day enslaved also on a political basis. We do have political prisoners right here in California and people that have been in prison for 10, 20, 30, 40, going on at 50, and 50 more and more years and should be home to their families by now. And it is, in my view, it is irresponsible for us to continually turn a blind eye and a deaf ear and a cold heart to what is taking place on our watch in our prisons um, nationwide, but especially here in California. This is count number five. Conspiracy to maintain a domestic torture program. CDC small R employees have engaged in a pattern and practice of systematic torture to coerce information, to suppress politically progressive ideas and attitudes, and do permanent psychological damage to targeted prisoners. CDC small R has maintained a domestic torture program in dungeon cells, strip cells, and shoe units, security housing units, for well over a century. The primary function of the program is to inflict such continuous physical and psychological torture, pain, and suffering on those subject to these units that their minds actually break and they either submit to completely 
to the dictates of the state, CDC small r, no matter how contrary to their interests or basic human rights those dictates may be, go mad, or in the case of those who resist indefinitely, to serve as living examples to the rest of the prisoner population of the state's absolute power over the bodies, much as crucifixions served the Romans. In the case of the dungeon cells, prisoners would be stripped naked and forced into a urine and feces-covered stone cell with no light, a hole in the floor as a toilet, no running water, and nothing else but the stench and the darkness. A bare mattress would be issued at last count and taken away again first thing in the morning. No linen or clothing were provided in these cold, dank, and filthy stone boxes because CDC small r employees wanted to ensure prisoners were subject to the perpetual indignity of nakedness and could not escape through suicide. The department's regulations and state law on dungeon cells stipulated that, quote, prisoners shall not be housed for more than 10 days, unquote, inside one. However, for those who maintained their dignity, sanity, and principles, characterized as defiant by staff, or depending on the level of sadism staff on that watch expressed, prisoners were frequently removed from the dungeon cell and placed in a holding cage for one hour on the 10th day, then put back into the dungeon cell for another 10. In the most severe use of this torture chamber, one subject, a new African revolutionary nationalist, was confined there for a record six months. The physical and psychological toll of such torture chambers is so severe, the isolation so intense, and contrary to human mental wellness, that many simply went mad. The introduction of security housing units, shoes, into Old Folsom and San Quentin Adjustment Center was the precursor to California's modern torture units at Pelican Bay, Corcoran, and elsewhere. These units, in contrast to the medieval brutality of the dungeon cells, were clinically designed to break men's minds and export and export the informant psychosis to their communities. The conceptual framework for the shoe design finds its origins in a meeting of prison wardens and social scientists held in Washington, D.C. in 1962. There, Dr. Edgar Schein delivered his findings on, in a speech titled Man Against Man, Brainwashing, and the concept of the modern supermax control unit was born. In addressing the group, Dr. Schein stated, I would like you to think of brainwashing not in terms of politics, ethics, or morals, but in terms of the deliberate changing of human behavior and attitudes by a group of men who have relatively complete control over the environment in which the captive populace lives, unquote. Its political intent was clear from the outset. Former warden Ralph Aaron of one of the first Supermax lockup units, Marion Supermax, stated the purpose of the shoes was to, quote, to control revolutionary attitudes in the prison system and society at large, unquote. What Dr. Shane and his cohorts provided was its function. To be effective, the new techniques he described would require a new type of environment, one which could alter the very foundations of one's perception of reality. For this, they would adopt Dr. Levinson's sensory deprivation prison unit design and a form of Skinnerian operant conditioning called learned helplessness. This last technique is a key factor in the California State Domestic Torture Program in both its validation-based indeterminate shoe, confident, and debriefing process. Learned helplessness is a systematic process of conditioning, sorry, a systemic process 
of conditioning designed to crystallize in the imprisoned victim's mind that he or she has no control over the regulation of his or her existence, that they are completely dependent on the state and its guards for the necessities of life, that he or she is helpless and must submit to the state's power and control in order to survive. I would just like to add here that this is exactly what's taking place out here when we do not allow um, our people to feed themselves, clothe themselves, house themselves, educate themselves, um, um, and uh, build their own communities themselves. Okay, back to the, to the indictment. Because this type of forced submission runs contrary to human consciousness, a linear thought divergence occurs into two options, resistance or escape. The program is designed to apply maximum punitive coercion against resistance from the outset, physical removal from general population and confinement to solitary, sensory deprivation, utilization of informants, collaborators, and agent provocateurs to erode trust amongst those in, this, in like circumstances, punishing uncooperative attitudes, prohibiting collective thought and expression while simultaneously employing group punishment, punitive property restrictions, arbitrary punishments, etc., etc. Those capable of indefinite resistance through ideological and political development or force of will, like victims of crucifixion left to rot on crosses during the Roman Empire, served as, a, as powerful deterrence to those of lesser psychological resistance. These less developed subjects in Shu, or those still in general population, confronted with the ever-present specter of indefinite Shu confinement were conditioned to avoid resistance and instead explored the second option, escape. Through Marion Control Unit, though Marion Control Unit was among the first prisons in the Shine Levinson Skinnerian torture system, the most infamous by far is California's premier control unit, Pelican Bay Shoe. Because one of the central functions of these new control units was to leverage torture to coerce information from its victims, Pelican Bay Shoe made its, quote, escape option clear. Parole, debrief, or die. As a result of the undue influence of the prison industrial slave complex, on the legislative, political, and to a degree cultural apparatus of the state and nation, most validated shoe prisoners are serving mandatory minimums, enhanced sentences of board of prison terms based indeterminate terms, and their very confinement in the shoe is prohibitive to their parole. If you want to parole, it, quote, if you want a parole date, you probably want to think about debriefing, unquote, is a common statement from parole board governors to shoe prisoners before them. This increases the psychological pressure on those already weakened by the conviction that they've been abandoned by and isolated from society and only through submission and, and subservience can they be socially accepted as human beings. This form of, quote, escape known as debriefing, in essence becoming an informant or agent of the state, is consistent with point seven, eight, and 9 of Dr. Shane's or Shine's behavior modification method. Number seven, exploration of opportunities. Eight, convincing prisoners they can trust no one. Number nine, treating those who are willing to collaborate in far more lenient ways than those who are not, unquote. That beatings, assaults, gladiator-style 
matches, and murder are also liberally employed in shoe torture units only exacerbates the attacks on the nervous equipment of those subject to indefinite solitary confinement. That indefinite or even relatively short-term solitary confinement constitutes torture is undeniable and something the U.S. and the state of California have known since the 1870s. However, with lobbying efforts by guards unions like California's CCPOA and the nationwide march toward the expansion of control units we've witnessed over the previous 30 years, the clinical approach to domestic torture has taken on an almost Auschwitz-style tone in its matter-of-fact use. Title 18, USC, S2340, and UN Convention Against Torture, Article 1, Section 2, defines torture as, quote, any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or her or a third person information or a confession, punishing him or her at for an act he or she or a third party has committed or is suspected of having committed or intimidating or coercing a third person, unquote. This definition is synonymous with the purpose and function of California's shoe units and supermax control units across the nation. That the U.S. has preserved for itself a legal exemption for domestic torture has no bearing on its criminal nature. Title 18 S234 is enforceable only outside the U.S., so any acts of torture as defined in S2340 committed within the U.S. are not crimes under U.S. law unless they are accompanied by severe physical injury. Torture is a crime. Coercion through torture to elicit information to further a criminal enterprise is a greater crime. Leveraging scientists, psychologists, and structural engineers to methodically strip away the minds and humanity of captive victims to transform them into active tools of the state is evil. Conceptually intended for exclusive use on politically progressive prisoners, for instance, the imprisoned Black Panther Party, American Indian Movement, Weather Underground, Black Guerrilla Family, Black Liberation Army members, and Puerto Rican independence groups, etc., etc. Instead, almost from the onset, the state sought to intertwine criminal prison-based organizations, street gangs, and organized crime outfits with these revolutionary formations within their criminal law criminological lexicon characterizing all of them as, quote, gangs, or more recently, security threat groups, STGs. This, like every aspect of their domestic program, their domestic torture program, was a calculated measure. Here, the staff sought to criminalize legitimate revolutionary formations and political progressives through the simple turn of a phrase, a strategic act of libel and slander encoded into their very regulations on gang validations and indeterminate shoe confinement. In an instant, anyone validated as a gang member by law became a gang member, no matter if they were a political prisoner or a political gangster. This served a dual purpose. It dehumanized anyone the state labeled a gang member in the eyes of the public, while providing a false basis for the denial of the existence of political prisoners in America made plausible by three decades of the PISC lobbying and media propaganda. This recasting of progressive political ideologues as gang members acts as a manufactured regulatory loophole which allows CDC small r officials to interfere with and blatantly repress the constitutional rights of these prisoners. See USC First Amendment, etc. 
via threats, intimidation, and coercion under color of law, an equally blatant violation of state and federal hate crimes statutes. That CDC small r has used the distance of these torture units as a means to influence public opinion in support of prison expansion and draconian uh, sentencing laws is further evidence of the sub subversion of justice to advance the particular economic interests of CDC small r employees engaged in this racketeering enterprise. This century-long pattern practice and expansion of the use of domestic torture units and the use of systemic torture techniques to coerce information from and retaliate against political prisoners for exercising their constitutional rights, all in furtherance of an ongoing racketeer enterprise violates Title 18, S1961, S1952, USC First Amendment, Eighth Amendment, and Fourteenth Amendment, Civil Code S52.1, Government Code s 11135 S8.12, Penal Code S4221.77, and Title 18 S2340. So this indictment of the state, as you're saying, is a blueprint for, the, you know, for what's taking place, I think is just, it's like the, it's like the fulcrum of everything. So I would love for you to just, to comment, you know, just talk to us from all of those standpoints and more, really, however you want to see it. Because the prison industrial slave complex is a continuous national monolith which seeks to socially control the vast majority of our communities, if not all of our communities. The struggle that you see raging across the country nationally, be it in Alabama, California, New York, etc., these are different fronts in the same struggle. The contradictions that are uh, currently being experienced in Alabama are the contradictions that we waged in one here in California. The level of contradiction is different. But the, the adversary that's on the other end of that contradiction is the same. And because this enemy is so big, because this enemy is so all-encompassing, it's going to take everybody. It's going to take aspects of struggle that we have yet to develop. It's going to take new solutions. It's going to take new and fresh ideas. It's going to take more boots on the ground. When we originally conceptualized the indictment, me and my comrade Abdul, we viewed it from the perspective of those who are oppressed by this society. And the fact that the vast majority of people in this society don't even realize they are oppressed. They don't realize the reflexive nature of fascism. They don't understand it's a mass psychology that they actively participate in on a daily basis. And so when they view these mechanisms of social control, like those that's outlined in the indictment, the fact that their nation has created a prison industrial slave complex that's predicated upon intentionally criminalizing undesirable segments of the population in order to dispose of them in such a fashion that they're making money off of. That they're making money off of hunting, capturing, trying, convicting, and imprisoning human beings, men, women, and children for no other reason than their skin tone or area in the social strata. 
that in and of itself should let you know what type of society that you live in and act as an impetus for you to seek to organize to change it. It should be a lightning rod for revolutionary social change. But you live in a society. I mean, just look at what's going on in popular discourse right now. Across this country, you see a resurgence in open fascism. Right-wing political ideology is the dominant ideology in the United States of America. It's the, becoming the dominant ideology globally, especially when you talk about those powers that currently dominate the world, global white supremacists. You're talking about Italy, fascists, Britain, fascists, United States, fascists, Canada, proto-fascists. I can go on and on and on and on and on. My point is, until such time, as we begin to view reality as it actually is, not how we want it to be, not how we've been told it is, but how it actually is, and begin to respond to it in a rational way. Let me say this. Revolution is rational. And what I mean by revolution, I mean progressive social change. It's rational. It's predicated upon practical things. Things like wanting to be able to eat when you're hungry. Things like wanting a roof over your head so you have somewhere to live. Something like maintaining a degree of education. Something like gainful employment so you can actually have the resources you need to live. These are, these are practical desires. And within this practicality comes a corresponding action, something that needs to be done to achieve what seems to be, you know, the most basic necessities of life. The unfortunate reality is we live in a system which stratifies society, creates a hierarchy, and that hierarchy is designed to deserve, to serve the interests of an exclusive minority of the population. I would say 2%. Y'all understand something? 99% of the wealth in this country is owned by 2% of this population. This concentration of wealth, power, political influence, in such a small hand of individuals, actually, by definition, produces corruption. You corrupt the very mechanisms of, of your society itself. The very mechanisms of uh, social actualization. One of the most visible examples is the prison industrial slave complex. In the United States of America, its law enforcement apparatus, its, its, its judicial machinery, is the greatest contradiction in human history. And so, how is it we are actively participating in a system that we know full well commoditizes our children and young people to be stored in a concrete box that they can make millions and billions of dollars off of. Then, here's the flip side to that coin. Where are prisons 
average prison guard's base pay is $106,000 a year. However, the average prison guard makes over $200,000 a year. Well, how do they do this? They do it by overtime. It's, it's almost like a, a, a running joke here. You hear them talk about it all day, every day. I mean, how much overtime they got available? Now I want that. These dudes literally write their own check. Wow. And so here you got a 21, 22-year-old kid who's then grew up, uh, you know, in, in, in rural Central California or, or rural Northern California or rural Southern California where they have a particular political ideology. And now they have $200,000 a year. Portion that has to go to the union. So now you have the most powerful lobbying force in the state right. being the California Correctional Peace Officers Association. So you create a automatic affluent constituency by which to create new legislators, new judges on the local, regional, and state level. Now you can pass those laws. So in a state like California, that's supposed to be a left-leaning, progressive state, you have perhaps one of the largest prison populations in the United States of America. That's a contradiction. In order for you to carry out a program that is so obviously anti-human, for you to carry out a, and maintain an industry that is predicated upon exploiting human bondage. Do that in 2022. Slavery. Active slavery. All right. If you are just joining us, you are tuned into KPOO San Francisco 89.5. This is Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown. We are still in conversation with Joka Hashima Jinsai, the author of Indictment of the State and its Prison Industrial Slave Complex, concept by Abdul Oludbala Shakur. We were just listening to an excerpt of a one-hour-long conversation that I was having with Hashima. So we are going to stop there and take a quick musical break and come back with Kinetic Justice and then Balagoon. And perhaps we will hear some more from Hashima in this episode. All right, here we go with Cry Cry Blood by Steel Pulse. Who the hell do they think I am? Give me food from the back bottom. Give me scrap from the table. I'm on a desperate hard disabled. In this land we live with dark and dark. I said the whole of them are gone like hog. Simple things will make me jump and back. I grab a leash just like a harbor shot. Right blood. Inside my bones, I am back against the 
You're listening to Prison Focus Radio. I'm your host, Nube Brown, and we are going to uh, hear from Kinetic Justice, again, abolitionist, activist, organizer inside of uh, Alabama prison, talking about uh, the strike and uh, prison slavery. I'd be remiss if I did not mention that the voice of Kinetic Justice comes through the generous um, courtesy of Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan of Abolition Today. And what you're going to hear from Kinetic Justice is um, a response to how the legislators feel about slavery in the state of Alabama as an economic, uh, very boldly, blatantly economic system um, of payroll um, and, and job opportunities um, on the backs of people. So here is Kinetic Justice's uh, response to that. And also, one of the other guests is uh, Pastor Kenneth Sharpton Glasgow. Um, and so I encourage you all to go to abolitiontoday.org and um, listen to the full uh, episode uh, that involves the Kinetic Justice and the other, if you want to, the other episodes, if you want some. Uh, information about slavery and some education, go to abolitiontoday.org. You can listen to the archives or listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Here we go with Kinetic Justice's uh, response to the legislators talking about uh, slavery as their economic boom. Matt, uh, just to, to, to reiterate some of what uh, Brett Glasgow said is that, you know, this is not, that's not surprising, you know what I'm saying? These are some of the boldest people that you will ever encounter. You know, I've been incarcerated 30 years, right at 30 years, and I've been dealing with uh, the mentality and the mindset of people in positions of authority in Alabama. And they have a sense of entitlement um, that no one has the right to challenge. You know what I'm saying? They uh, they don't hide too many things. I'm talking about they'll tell you straight up. You know what I'm saying? We don't care about you filing lawsuits about police brutality. 
you'll learn eventually that, you know, you can't get bonded out the mold. You know what I'm saying? We got people who gonna pay the bills. You know, we don't care about you or mm-hmm. somebody that ain't right. We don't care about not feeding y'all. We'll let the world see we ain't feeding y'all. We starving y'all. We don't care. We don't mm-hmm. care what y'all talk about, what y'all got to say. You know what I'm saying? This is one thing I keep telling people about Alabama. That the first thing about Alabama you have to understand is that they are some of the most diehard, prideful people on the planet. I'm talking about they can be dead wrong. But they would not relent. They would not give it. They will stand firm to the end. They will do that. The next thing you have to understand about them is they only respect two things, bloodshed and money. That's all they respect. They don't care about you filing lawsuits. They don't care about you exposing them in the media. They don't care about paying you fines and fees. They don't care about any of that. You know, that's, that's, that's irrelevant to them. Exerting their will over the people that they say they govern and control, that these my people, you know, that these my slaves, I ain't gonna let them go, I don't care what happened. Look at the brother Willie Simmons. The whole world been talking about his story for years. You know, he been in prison 40 some years for $9. How crazy did it be? I'm talking about Kim Kardashian, you know, different legislators from different states. Alabama don't care nothing about what you talking about. Be a slave, be $20,000 a month, I mean, a year, and that's $100,000 every five years. So I don't care what you're talking about. I ain't letting go of these slaves under no circumstances. And that's what people have to understand about Alabama, that it takes drastic things for them to do the right thing. You know, uh, lately I've been trying to give people context to understand that, you know, not just what we're going through in prison, because there's a lot of things that go on in prisons across the country that are similar to what we deal with. But we have a unique situation in Alabama. I'm talking about we have a unique situation because we have a slave master who has never even pretended like he let his slaves go. You know, in Alabama, they have not pretended from the beginning. In the 1860s, it took the federal government and guns to come down here to make them so-called release the bodies. And as soon as they got situated... It took the federal government to come down here for reconstruction. Then when they left, they had to come right back in the early 1900s to stop peonage. Then they left and they had to come right back with guns to stop convict leasing. Then they left and they had to come right back with guns to make them segregate schools. Then they had to come. Alabama is never going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. It's going to always take force. It's going to always either take bloodshed or money. And, you know, on the inside, we understand that we ain't in no position to be talking about no bloodshed with nobody. But we do control a whole lot of money. They are freaking shameless. And you're absolutely right. Uh, When they allegedly ended convict leasing in the United States, it was because of a cave-in in Alabama. This is Max Parthas. 145 Mm -hmm. men, women, and children, black men, women, and children in there. And the world was like, oh, the hell with that, right? Also, where did the last alleged slave ship end up? In Alabama, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like Alabama is just shameless. They have no S to give at all about what they're doing because who's going to do something about them? The whole damn state is like Bull Connor, it seems like, you know? That, 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 Kay Ivey has taken on the name of being George Wallace. She ain't standing in the doorway like Ooh. he was, but she... She's standing at the gate of our freedom. She's the new George Wallace. All right, people, come on. That is as real as it 
gets do not think that California is operating any differently as kinetic justice made reference to. Um, you know, maybe the way our legislators are doing it, except their legislators are bold. Ours are just liars and um, are hiding, but doing the same thing. They are keeping our people from being free. It's just the reality of it. And so, uh, yes, as real as real gets. We are now going to hear from uh, Brother Balagoon. I'm so sorry, I, I switched his name around. Um, uh, Muhammad K. Balagoon. It's actually Balagoon Muhammad. So here we go uh, with uh, Balagoon talking about revolutionary humanism. Hey, this is Brother Balagoon Campbell from Behind Enemy Lines. I'd like to share with you just a few thoughts regarding revolutionary humanism, uh, as I've been asked many questions about that since the paper uh, published it. Um, one of those questions is foremost, what does revolutionary humanism or radical humanism mean? And where did the term come from? The adjective radical comes from the root or Latin word radic and denotes the root. Thus it is defined as something relating to the origin, the fundamental, marked by a considerable departure from the usual or traditional extreme tending or deposed to make extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions, etc. The noun humanist derives from the root word human, which has its beginning in the Latin word humus, humanus, excuse me, which means homo, as in homo sapien. It denotes or defines, it is defined as being susceptible to or representative of the symbolic or sympathetic to and uh, the fragilities of human nature. Of course, when I use it... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Of course, when I use it, I mean to imply that there's a critical spirit and attitude towards all aspects of life that is considered or centered on the divine spark in all human beings. I use the title humanist to emphasize that there is a way of life rooted in a set of values so simple that the dignity and worth of each human being is raised for the salvation and liberation of the whole of humanity. I use this title also because it speaks to our individual capacity, not just for self-realization, but for our collective capacity to tap into a vibrational frequency that shifts the very energy of our environment and makes the quality of life much more reasonable and much more acceptable to the whole of humanity, no matter what class or structure you may be in. Understand that revolutionary humanism works in tandem with environmental preservation because homo sapiens need a home planet. Radical or revolutionary humanism works hand in hand with animal activism because animals like plants and insects constitute kingdoms under our standard and control or under our stewardship. Radical or revolutionary humanists move in lockstep with the pro-life movement, not the pro-lifers per se, but the pro-life movement that seek to dictate a woman's choice or how she uses her womb to magnify 
of the Supreme Creator. No, that's wrong, the wrong idea. We move with the ebb and flow of the pro-life movement that proclaims Black Lives Matter. We stand in solidarity with the masses who are jobless, homeless, and hungry. As revolutionary humanists or radical humanists, we cast an eye on the condemnation towards the corporate archfiends who use the wealth of the world for selfish means. So, many of the 1% look at the vast numbers of the 99% and multiple radical elements of the Black Lives Matter movement and wonder what it is that has brought black, brown, red, yellow, and even white people into a consolidated group devoted to just justice, equality of opportunity, and a chance at life. The governments of every nation have deployed their intelligence networks and put their social scientists and civil engineers to work on an answer to the question. One question, how can the death of George Floyd create a multinational, multi-ethnic, multilinguistic movement for justice and equality of opportunity? Let's back up and look at the title humanist. The noun you means complexion or aspect, color, color the attribute of colors that permits them to be classed as red, yellow, green, blue, or an indeterminate between any continuous pair of these colors. No, black is not a color. It is the essence of all color. And in fact, it is uh, the absorber of all colors. The noun man comes from the Spanish manu and means the power of the element, uh, elemental factors, or of nature embodied in a prison or theme, mind, moral authority, etc. Iti is a suffix, or ity is a suffix that is defined as the quality, state, or degree of. When we combine the definitions of each, we get the color of a mind state or aspect of a moral authority to a degree. The attribute or spirit of colors that permeates them to be classified as racist or red, yellow, brown, or white are determinants between any contagious part of these colors, melanites, infused with the power of the elemental forces of nature embodied in a thing of quality. Note, earth, wind, fire, water are the elemental forces that I speak of here. Of course, nature embodies in the Black Lives Matter movement, elemental forces of nature embodied in the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, becoming a humanist according to this definition will make you full, fully vulnerable to a degree as you no longer have the old title of, uh, to define you, and by extension, the belief system that supported those titles. However, you will become more confident as you grow to understand that, as a humanist, you are valued and appreciated. And as you work for the uh, vital change,
in the human condition and the wheels of fear, the walls of fear and trepidation vanish the love and mission and acceptance of life's terms will escalate and your vibrational frequency will elevate. Understand we cannot truly be humanist until we are able to share the attributes, flaws, and defects that we all have have in common as human, all weaknesses for sex, drugs, violence, food, games, sports, etc., are incompleteness as males and females, people of the opposite gender, and as human beings, our imperfections as a civil society, our inadequacy as a nation, our sins as ignorant, wasteful fools, our lack of love and compassion. We must do the work of creating a more humanistic society wherein true healing is possible. This is my message to you. The more clearly this idea and energy of healing registers in your awareness of the human condition, the more clearly you will feel your relationship with everyone and everything within us. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. Now, some believe that they know the plight of New African people here in America and that the essential elements of our struggle are the specific of our struggle. This moment in the struggle is irrelevant because blacks kill each other on a daily basis. Those who fall into that realm of thought or assume that they have come to truly understand the context in which we, as a people, push, struggle, and strive, lose their ability to feel our pain and tap into our humanity, which is not... You have 60 seconds remaining. ...which is not the motivating force alone, but at the root of our divine nature. This is Belagoon Campbell from Behind Enemy Lines. Thank you for listening to these few words. All right, beautiful people, that is our show. This is a project of California Prison Focus. Reach them at www.prisons.org. And you can reach me, Nube Brown, at nube at sfbayview.com for any of the details that you've heard during this show. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.